Hello, and welcome to the Sweet Tea Shakespeare Hours, where we spend time well by spending it together. We're so glad you're here. Sweet Tea Shakespeare is a theater and music company based in North Carolina that seeks to gather diverse communities around a common table to delight in story, song, and stagecraft. This podcast is kind of like our digital campfire, a place where we can come together to share ideas and tell stories. Our podcast has four distinct ways of gathering and sharing those ideas and stories. You're currently listening to After Hours, a series of candid discussions about politics and pop culture, and occasionally their intersections with Shakespeare. For the best listening experience, we recommend a stiff drink or a strong cup of coffee. So grab your favorite late night beverage and settle in. Things are about to get lively. All right. So hello. Mando- oh, hello. Here we are. We're in it. I clicked the button and you caught you by surprise. A second. I was I wasn't on yet. Now I'm on. You are. All the bells and whistles. What you been up to? I mean, <laughs> it's been a busy week. In fact, for me, I've been a little stressed out. I uh, I don't know if you see. Like I, I posted something somewhere about this. Have you ever seen that video uh, where the guy screams singing like? projected on the mountain this sounds psychotic as i'm describing it (laughs) it's this like it's this song and i think the guy's australian but it looks like a western and he is like um projected is not the right word but like uh an image of him is like uh you know blue screened or green screened in among like cl- the clouds and the skies over these different western vistas in this song and the guy is screaming like while he's singing um it, it's it's uh it's it's quite striking and that has been what's going through my head periodically throughout the week as i've been trying to sort of deal with all the various things i have to deal with um that i believe the song like is called big enough big enough all right i'm gonna check it out after i've been it's the last week of the semester here so it's it's all of that craziness and the way that plays out usually is like all the faculty get busy grading and the students are focused and all of this and and every single administrator that that ever lives wants to schedule a meeting for the friday monday and tuesday before thanksgiving and uh somebody needs to get them a memo that that is um that's bad management. Anyway, um, uh, so I've been doing that, and we're actually we've been doing like rehearsal and recording for our Christmas concert, which is weird to do. We've got like these resonator masks that look like duck bills, and you like sing <laughs> from behind them, and it's uh, yeah, it's like it's like watching the the Huey, Dewey, and Louie um, do their thing. That's, That's nice. I would like really lean into that hard if I was. <laughs> They're black. That's the only thing. I'm like, if I could have ordered them yellow, I would have done that for sure. Just... <laughs> well, you could paint them, right? That's right. That's right. So here we are. Here we are. Um, I should say that if you're listening to this live, um, that this episode may not come out for several weeks. We're like taking a little bit of a break on the podcast side. So I don't know when this is coming out. I don't know. That's all somebody else. But uh, if you're listening to this live, happy Thanksgiving. 
if you're not listening to to it live, happy next Thanksgiving, maybe. Um, but really, is it going to be that long? <laughs> Probably not that long. But we yeah. are taking a little pause. The streams will keep happening, but the uh, the podcast distribution is taking a yeah. But everything we're talking about is evergreen. It's so evergreen. So today uh, we're talking about the Mandalorian and our uh, Falstaff son writing project play and uh, and the Queen's Gambit, the new Netflix yeah. show. All so things. I guess we can start with the Mandalorian, huh? Sure, let's do it. Um, so the Mandalorian in its second season on Disney Plus, the uh, Star Wars television series, the first Star Wars television series. Live action television series, we should say. There have been many Star Wars television series over the decades, uh, all of them animated. Uh, but this is the first live action one. And uh, after what I think is fair to say, a uh, mixed reception, <laughs> mixed and negative, maybe, uh, to the recent films, um, Mandalorian has been sort of, uh, well, certainly much better received. Uh, one might go so far as to say a triumph, a huge hit, beloved, in fact, in a way that uh, I don't know that any of these, uh, any Star Wars film really has been on this level since the original trilogy, you know. Um, and uh, I think personally carries the mantle of the um, of the franchise more effectively than any other live action thing that's happened since the original trilogy. Yeah. I I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm with that assessment. Uh, I, I, every time I think about the Mandalorian, it's a positive feeling, but um, right behind it are a lot of negative feelings about the last, <laughs> the last trilogy. Yeah. Um, right. I, it's, it's unreal how bad though that uh, really kind of, I don't know, you know, set. And I I don't, I should say, you know, I, I don't blame the people making the, <laughs> making the films. I, I have a lot of sympathy for, for people who are undergoing any creative endeavor. And I, here's the thing. The reason that I, I think that The Mandalorian works so well, where it's been a tougher road for the films in recent years, is I think that the show really benefits from not having to carry the weight of being super special mm -hmm. and an event. Um, so, you know, we, this can be a little more tossed off, and I think that that's the real secret to it, because Star Wars, I don't think, was ever meant to carry the weight of being really important. Like the original trilogy... By the time you got to the third movie, you know, I think probably it built itself up to a place in the popular imagination where it felt kind of important by the time you got to Return of the Jedi. But, um, you know, the the real key to that is just dumb, pulpy fun, right? And it was done very well. And ever since then, like from the prequels through this, you know, last trilogy, there are things to like about all of them, but I think that one of the things that's really handicapped the series is uh, the need to be is the need to be really important, 
and you know it's just fraught with all of this and you know meaning especially especially the sort of legacy films of the later of the last trilogy it's like uh, the, it, it all just almost it's it's just so much weight and the great thing about the mandalorian is it's really fleet and it's really light and it's really you know fun tv and that's um kind of amazing though i i, I suppose we could talk a little bit about the about the show in more detail and i'm, I'm happy to do that but i want to i i do have things to say about these trilogies yeah. um so first so 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 I'm, i need to get my anger out and then i'm happy oh, to no. talk about delight but the, the so I, I sort of take a less generous uh, uh, tack, it sounds like, uh, on, the, on these last three. Now, I, I thought um, uh, The Force Awakens was just fine. Um, I, I don't have any real criticisms of it. I, um, on Last Jedi, I know it's hugely controversial, but I actually liked where it headed. Um, yeah, I, in the yeah. last, particularly the last third of that movie, um, I like the risk that it take that that it took. I like uh, that it was intentionally um, um, transgressive. Um, I liked all of those things. Um, yeah, and I was incredibly. I just thought I just thought the last one uh, was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Maybe, <laughs> um, but um, uh, like. My take on the creation of that is that it 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 um, there wasn't a single sort of vision behind it. I mean, the J.J. Abrams piece. Well, there was clearly. Sort of well, I mean, yes, there there clearly was not. Right. Right. That's the whole and, thing. And that is that that was the main mistake. I think had any single one of those people been at the helm for all three and and the arc. I mean, I know Brian um, Johnson, right, and. Um, and J.J. Uh, Abrams are trustworthy in other ways. Uh, and so I think I think could have handled it. But I also think they were both sort of trapped by their childhoods and what they wanted Star Wars to mean and be. And um, and so that's that's my reading on the disappointment. Well, inter- maybe, though. I mean, Ryan Johnson, if anything, was really reacting against that. Right. It was, you know, sure. His, but I actually films. think that like for him. And I did like his film, the best of the three, uh, at least that third of it, right? I thought that was the best, the best work. Um, is I think he was reacting to, to his childhood in a different way, right? So, so J.J. Abrams I, is like I, the good boy, and Ryan Johnson is like the 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 troubled, bad child. A little bit, perhaps, but I I I, I think it comes from a you know a a real place, and. Uh, this will just be our Star Wars segment, I guess, is what we're really going to do here. The we'll get to the Mandalorian, video. I promise. Well, you know, uh, here's the thing. I I think that uh, I think that what Ryan Johnson did in his film, and is the thing, I have quibbles with aspects of that film, things that work for me better than others, and some things less than others in it. But I the core of it i i am extremely fond of uh especially the stuff with ray luke and um kylo ren the sort of emotional core of that film the center of it i think is perfect 
And I know that that is the storyline, the sort of nexus of those three characters, and Luke in particular is the thing that makes the people who just hate that movie hate it with a white-hot burning passion. Mm-hmm. It's like, there are things I don't you know, like as much as others about that film, and I can sort of get into it. Well, it doesn't matter. But the core, the core of it, I think, is fantastic. And, and Luke's arc of becoming this embittered, unhappy person who's withdrawn from the Force and uh, really looking back very critically at the Jedi Order, that is of a piece with um, the prequels and the original trilogy and really creates a very deft, thoughtful, and, um, you know narratively satisfying through line for not just for the Jedi order and Luke in it, you know, the, the story, one of the things that, that um, always felt like a little bit of a disconnect uh, between the prequels and the original trilogy was the implication that the Jedi really screwed up in the prequels that they became, you know, bloated and too prideful that they didn't see what was coming. And Yoda sent, you know, had been like the head of this order that lived in a luxurious, super modern city. Um, and then he went to go live on the crappiest of crappy swamp planets in exile because of how badly he screwed up. And the thing is, like, you had to put that together a little bit yourself, that that's what Yoda did. They didn't underline that ever. Like, if you watch the original trilogy on its own, you had no idea that Yoda had once, you know, lived in this incredible sci-fi, you know, palace city or whatever. And, you know, it, it, it just... You, you could find a through line, but you had to create it yourself. And what Ryan Johnson did really elegantly is, you know, brought those same themes up. And the idea that the Jedis had massively failed also wasn't something that you could pick up immediately from from the original trilogy, right? There was no real indication that the Jedi was this, you know, order of people who became too prideful. I mean, in retrospect, you, you, again, can put it together, but this just underlines it. And Luke comes to the same place. It's like, these people messed up. We were wrong to begin with. And I went through that same rise and fall. And then he has to get pulled out of it again, you know, uh, at the end. It's like relearning that lesson. And I'll tell you, the moment in that movie when uh, Yoda comes back, uh you know, as a, you know, ghost Yoda to visit um, Luke, uh, that it was an emotionally stirring moment. You know, I mean, I was emotionally stirred by the, the Muppet talking to the guy. Um, so that all really worked for me. Yeah, it did for me too. Well, and the other thing I want to just to transition us back to the Mandalorian and to your oh, original sure thesis, which I think I agree with is that the other the other things in sort of recent Star Wars memory that have not carried the weight of events have been the the 
sort of standalones, Rogue One and Solo, which I think have been the most successful. Right? Yeah, I agree. I I um I actually am a big fan of I'm a big fan of Rogue One, and actually I feel like the tide is really turning on that. Like, uh, there's I don't know that it was poorly received to begin with, but I, my sense is that there's been a building consensus that that's actually a really good movie, yeah. and in the tri- in the you know in the world, and I know Solo is controversial, but I actually like it. Yeah, I think I like the it. for me Solo is great if you can sort of ignore the first 45 minutes, which aren't bad, just dry. Well, and the thing that I like the best about Solo, and this really does transition us into The Mandalorian, is that it feels very slight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the The stakes aren't high, and it's not like it's great. You know, it's it's not great. Um, but it it feels just like, that's a fun, it reminded me, it's like, this is a fun sci-fi, you know, family movie like they used to make and don't really anymore. Well, and, it was like a good time on a Saturday morning going to see a movie. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And it's like very low stakes execution, you know, may or may not be great. I happen to think that it, it's not bad, especially given the really fraught, you know, history of that film. But in, in its way, that that's, you know, uh, those are qualities that I liked about that and that The Mandalorian really uh, excels at as well, along with a lot of other stuff. Like, but the fact that it's just, it's just fun. It's fun. And it's, well, it gets what I think the original trilogy touches on. I think it gets what Rogue One does well, what Solo does well, which is that it's a Western in space. I mean, that's the 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 thing i mean the mandalorian is is that i mean it's in, is, in yes, its it is soundtrack in its in its vistas in in every choice it makes it's a cowboy um story yes you know and there are elements of solo that are like that the elements of that character han solo that are like that elements of luke that are like that um and there are elements of rogue one which i mean i i think what is it the the, the comparison that it's just like they're Dirty Dozen in space or whatever. Well, it's the it's the Dirty Dozen and the Magnificent Seven a little bit as well. It, it, you know, um, but you know, it's a war movie and and western. You know, some this is not an original observation, but you know, it's been said that Star Wars really in its like core fundamental pieces are like, you know, you take uh, you know the the sort of um, you know what's his name mythology stuff. Uh, be good if I could remember Joseph Campbell. Yeah, Joseph Campbell yeah. mythology mixed with uh, Akira Kurosawa, um, you know, uh, movies combined with westerns combined with uh, you know old World War One and Two aerial battle films, and there you go, it's Star Wars. Uh, and they lean hard into the cowboy stuff in The Mandalorian. And really is just it's like an old it's like an old Western TV series to the point where like there there is obviously a serialized aspect to it. And it's becoming more and more serialized as it continues. But uh, it's still is strikingly episodic, you know, for the modern landscape where episodic television is 
it's not like it doesn't exist. When I say episodic, it's like, you know, standalone mm. uh, episodes that don't create a really tight narrative that you have to watch from episode to episode to make sense of. Um, it's kind of like, what's the new adventure this week? And, uh, you know, at, those shows are all over CBS. It's like, and people watch them. NCIS is like super popular in the CSI series and Law and Order and whatnot. You know, those are all things. But uh, at this level of prestige television, which this sort of occupies, it's unusual. You know, and it, it is, it's, it's, um, it's effective though. And then there's Baby Yoda, right? <laughs> that's the, and we haven't even mentioned him, and that's really the a whole... A stroke of genius. Um, yeah. It's just a stroke of genius. I mean, it's like the greatest character, you know, for on the radar since Walter White, I think. Well, right. And it's John Favreau's real sort of insight. I mean, I have to say, like, I, I, am, I am so impressed with John Favreau and what he's done on this show. You know, he's just sort of seamlessly melded these different elements and understood the property, understood Star Wars on this fundamental level that I don't know anybody, if anybody ever really understood it. Like George Lucas, I think, we've talked about this before in other forums, but I don't know that George Lucas ever entirely understood Star Wars, what was appealing about it. You know, it's like I, I think he had his own sort of subset of interests within the franchise that didn't always match up with uh, with, you know, the interests of you know people who loved the who loved it. Um, and that's his prerogative. But, you know, John Favreau had this real clear sense of, you know, no, this is what people love. They love the physical creatures. They love, you know, the somewhat cute humor if it's effective and it works. They love, you know, the Western stuff. They, you know, and it's like, and he just gets it. Mm -hmm. And it feels more Star Wars than Star Wars, you know? Yeah, I, that's that's part of, um, so what I think it also gets right is is that it, it feels of that fabric. It's got this sort of nostalgia thing going for it. You know, so the original Star Wars trilogy is, um, it's not that it's not innovative, but it's, it's, down in the Muppet world, right? It's low tech. It's well, it's, it's low and high tech at the same time. Well, I mean, that's the real. Yes, but what I would argue is that the the you know the what the prequel trilogy, right, and this last trilogy has have opted entirely towards high tech. And that's part well, of the reason that they don't work, is because they're they're not puppets. I mean. And the environments Abrams, are not that similar. I, I have to say, I mean, J.J. Abrams actually, I think, understood that as well. And I think that the later filmmakers really did get the tactile whatever is a big part of it, you know. And, um, you know, I think Lucas got very enamored with the, you know, uh, digital mm -hmm. world. And that's what happens. I don't blame him. I mean, he runs a company that does that, right? So you have the resources. He's on the cutting edge of creating that stuff. And I think... It's interesting. It happens to a lot of filmmakers. It happened to George Lucas. A lot of great filmmakers, which George Lucas is a, you know, great filmmaker in the history of film. And but and he's not the only one to really get seduced by technology. It happened to Peter Jackson. Um, it happened and continues to happen to um, James Cameron. 
you know, uh, these are people who created truly great popular films. It happened, it happened to Francis Ford Coppola, yeah. you know, and Steven Spielberg to a certain extent. You know, I, I think that when you are playing at a certain level and you suddenly get these new tools and you can see, like, the ability to do certain things, that just becomes very interesting to you. I don't know that it always helps tell the best story necessarily. But But this is where I would circle back to, to John Favreau, right? Who has famously now in, I mean, his, his other part of his Disney portfolio are animal movies at the moment. Right. Which are extraordinarily high tech in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of the, digital effect and animation films say what i mean the lion king is an animated film and but there's a groundedness it feels i mean they're doing that on purpose right they're putting in the natural world lion king and uh, well jungle book which is fantastic as well and there but it it there's a there's a authenticity he's after that that um i think helps put all that tech stuff sort of intention and he's always opting for the more authentic whatever that is i don't well, know well yeah that that's absolutely right and what you say i think is also true of iron man which you know mm-hmm. let it be remembered the biggest film franchise in the history of film whether you like it or not like the most lucrative and successful you know 23 film franchise was created, kicked off by John, John Favreau with Iron Man. And that tension between, I mean, I think that his great insight into uh, in that film, and it's the thing that gave birth to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, was, uh, yes, it needs to be have good action. Yes, we have all these technological tools at our disposal. But at the heart of it, I'm going to pick the quirkiest weirdest actor I can get into a major tentpole blockbuster film and I'm going to build you know this character and this franchise around his like idiosyncratic weirdness people don't remember now I think younger people in particular now that Robert Downey Jr. has spent the last you know 12 years being the biggest movie star on earth um but he was poisonous when, you know, uh, the that movie came out or when they were making it. He, and not because he's bad. Everybody agreed. He was like a crazy talented actor. But, you know, he had burned his career down by being a drug addict and getting sent to do time in prison. Mm-hmm. Like, not jail. Like, he went to prison. And, you know... Um, and hiring him to be in a film or a television show was incredibly expensive because they required this ridiculous insurance coverage just in case he went off and started doing smack and like ran away and and woke up in a child's bedroom, which he did once. Like the idea that, you know, you're going to build a franchise with the hopes of it becoming, I mean, they couldn't have even hoped that. 
build a franchise that would turn into the single most lucrative film franchise in the history of the medium. Uh, and you're going to build it around this guy's weird personality uh, is almost unthinkable. And John Favreau is the guy who saw that. You know, I, I should also be said while we're talking about John Favreau, his partner on this, Dave Filoni, I think is the other piece of The Mandalorian that really makes it work. And Filoni has been the uh, mastermind behind the last few uh, animated series, uh, The Clone Wars and um, Rebels, which really have been these instrumental in filling in gaps between the trilogies in a way that uh, makes the flaws or perceived flaws of those various uh trilogies it, it makes them work like and has woven the star wars universe into a hole in the way that the movies never did and what's fascinating is to see dave filoni's uh, uh mythology really coming to the fore in the mandalorian in this second season mm-hmm. like characters who he's essentially responsible for creating are now lining up to become major characters on this show and really and you know entering into the live action world in a way that is exciting if you've been following that you know cool stuff watch it that's what i say yeah you know along with everybody else it's on disney plus give it a look Our mission at Sweet Tea Shakespeare is to bring communities together. Regardless of where you come from, we consider you part of our community, one that supports each other no matter what. You can become a part of this important support system through our Patreon, where we make magic well by making it together with you. Our Patreon supporters are folks who join our commitment to community building by making a monthly pledge that goes first and foremost to the people at Sweet Tea Shakespeare. Your contribution inspires us to inspire others. And we hope you can join that work today by visiting patreon.com slash sweet tea shakes. The other thing, just to let it, you know, a last thing to note, a note to end on with this is it's crazy. The guest stars that they get on this show are like the leads of other television shows everywhere. Like, uh, it's kind of a spoiler if you haven't seen it, but, you know, the show's been on for a while now. Uh, Timothy Oliphant showing up as basically the sheriff of this town, you know, playing this variation on his characters from uh, Justified and Deadwood is the most sort of crazy. You know? uh, it, it's such a it's audacious for its obviousness, but it works like so yeah. well. It's like, like, who else are we going to cast? Right. And who could but who else could get like him to be? You want to be a day player? This guy who's like the lead of, you know, all these major TV shows. And that's like every every bit part on this show is like the lead of a different TV series. <laughs> it's unreal. Anyway, fun stuff. We like it. Go watch it. You're probably already watching it. Everybody's watching it. I do feel bad for all the people who like are listening to this and don't care or know anything about Star Wars because it's not like we gave any explanation of anything on this was like the most throw you into the water and assume you know what we're talking about conversation. Catch up, y'all. That's what I say. Yeah, there you go. Learn your nerd stuff. If you're Shakespeareans, that uh, 
really connects. And that is an interesting segue, actually, into our next uh, discussion here. Uh, the nerdy, um, mythology-heavy um, sequel-ness of Shakespeare is something that we are exploring in the play that we are writing, Falstaff's Son. Um, it's our sequel to uh, to the Henry IV and Henry V plays. Uh, you know, speaking of sort of <laughs> audaciously presumptuous sequels to classics, uh, we're writing one of our own. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been engaged in... Uh, sort of a bastardized NaNoWriMo, uh, the National November Writing Month. Man, NaNoWriMo, every time I say it, I feel super embarrassed. It's like it's an embarrassing thing to say. But uh, we've been working on it, and we took the occasion of this November to get a little more intensive about it. Uh, we kind of did a bastardized, as I say, NaNoWriMo, and we didn't do a lot of the stuff that you're supposed to do at the beginning. We've been writing this thing for a while, but one of the things that we sort of came across in our uh, recent development here is the uh, NaNoWriMo character questionnaire to help you uh, put your characters together. And it's a series of 46 different questions that you can answer about your characters. We've answered lots of characters. Like, uh, you know, um, we've been talking about this uh, play and these characters, Jeremy and I, for a few years now. Uh, but looking at this uh, list, there are questions that we have not specifically asked uh, or discussed between the two of us. And so we're going to um, take the opportunity to uh, bat some of these things around and uh, talk about our answers to them and see how that uh, informs our writing process. And so you're all going to witness us going through the NaNoWriMo character questionnaire. It's exciting, Jeremy, right? I'm excited. Let's do it. Oh, yes. Let's. Some of these will be fast, and some of them might require an entire episode. So some will be fast, and some will be slow. We will do our best. Yes. Okay, name. We know that, right? Boy. Boy. Or, if we want to get uh, more interesting, his name is John Falstaff, in fact. Though <laughs> <laughs> um, so he does not know that yet. Uh, his age, well, he will be various different ages throughout the play, right? Yep. I believe we meet him uh, at the age of seven. And then we, we we greet him at the end of the play, and he's, I don't know, middle-aged. At least an unspecified middle age. I'm, I bet if we do our homework, um, that we, will, we could actually calculate his age. Like if we yeah. did the, you know... It's like uh, the the final scene is like Henry V's deathbed, right? Do I have that? Am I remembering that right? It's like all of a sudden just nothing. So, um, um, I, like if we did our homework, which we will do at some point, like he's he's middle aged. I think he's he's dealing late, later age. He's. I think the the final scene is Henry V's deathbed or something. Well, yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. Um, our, our, one of our fun little twists, which we're uh, revealing to all of you listening to this, you know, because 
well, behind the curtain and whatnot. Uh, you know, the play begins with the uh, chorus character in our conception, the same chorus who existed in uh, Henry V, who's just some guy who knows a lot of stuff. Um, but in our story, in fact, he is the adult version of the boy. Um, and uh, he kicks off the play, and some version of him will probably be at the end of it um, after Henry has died, and maybe sometime after Henry has died. It's not, mm. you know... Um, so age is a funny thing in this uh, you know, story as well. Falstaff is a quote-unquote old man, right? In the uh, in the plays, in the Henry IV plays, um, and dies as a supposedly old man in Henry V. But what is an old man in Elizabethan England, right? Um, the character who uh, Falstaff is reputed to have been modeled after, um, Old Castle. Is that his name? No, is that yep. right? Yeah, John Old Castle. Yeah. John Old Castle, uh, he wasn't that old <laughs> by the time he died. But, uh, you know, depending on where in his life that's, that's happening. Also, there's also been uh, conjecture that much of Falstaff's sort of demeanor may have been, uh, may have been inspired by sort of one of the university wit uh, contemporaries of um, Shakespeare's. Yeah, Robert uh, Greene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Robert Greene, who was, you know, who did in fact die of, you know, essentially drinking himself to death. Uh, and um, he was in his 40s when he died, but like was, again, sort of uh, considered an old man in that group. And so how old are they really? We're... we're it's an interesting question. This uh, age question, if we did this with uh, Henry, could be interesting as well. Henry died in his late 30s. But I think in our play, he's going to probably embody something older than that. Yeah. Warren, you know? at least. Yeah. Um, for, for the sake of sort of, you know, hitting the notes that we want to hit. But I, I think we have an excuse for that, which is to say that back in that time period, people were older sooner, right? And y you lived harder. And in the plays, like Falstaff, the old man, maybe he's in his late 40s, right? <laughs> or early 50s. Uh, and so, you know, whoever would end up playing uh, will end up playing Henry in productions of this play are going to be a little older. And so anyway, all that is to say the boy, I don't know, thirties, forties by the time this ends, but him being the, the chorus also gives us an interesting out there too, because who knows how old that guy is, right? When we are at the, uh, you know, end of the play, there'll be multiple actors playing the part, at least three that we've earmarked, like someone playing shot the child version of him, uh, through the end and starting at seven through to him going to war in Henry V and then the adult version of 
of uh, the boy who will be, you know, in the second half of the play or second part of the play with Henry. And then there's the chorus who's, you know, the older middle-aged older man version of them. So a lot to talk about with age. Holy cow. Height. How, how tall is this person? All Elizabethans are short. They're about four foot six. They're hobbits. Yes. He's a hobbit. I, I know this because I have seen all of the suits of armor from back in the day and they're all <laughs> tiny little people. It so, is true. And yeah. it's funny. Like when they say, and he was a giant who strode across the field at six feet. Yeah. <laughs> this giant of a man. Um, eye color. What, what color are the boy's eyes? I assume they're John Falstaff's color or Dalter sheets color, but I don't know if, I'd have to do homework and see if there's Let's a say reference they're blue. to that in the place. Okay, yeah, They're probably in the text someplace, but... Mm, we'll get there. We, we, uh, some angry person's going to have an opinion about this. Um, physical appearance. Well, this is actually an interesting question um, in that uh, the boy, I in, my, in sort of my thinking about him, is always, like, in a weird way, physically... I think very different from Falstaff, right? Uh, you know, uh, and and in the original text in Henry the Fourth, um, there is the implied physical difference between them is actually made note of through in the play. Like, uh, he obviously the boy's diminutive; he's little. Uh, in comparison to Falstaff, but you imagine him being kind of skinny, right? And that's sort of part of the joke there. And I think that that'll carry through to him as an adult as well, that he'll be in good shape. I, the way that we're building him right now, he's really growing up to be a soldier, you know, and uh, then later a sort of um, in training to be a knight. And, and as an adult, he's going to have, he's going to be skilled in combat. He's going to be, you know, all these things that uh, that Falstaff never was, right? Or was, and then, or was, and then like know, went yeah. to seed, right? Yeah. Um, but that that contrast, like, and that really gets at one of the fundamental sort of contrasts that we're looking to create here in the play is like the difference between the boy and Falstaff, and to what extent does he have Falstaff in him? I think is a preoccupation of the of the story especially later when he comes to find out that falstaff is his father you know that's there's sort of a curse in that um and maybe a blessing that he comes to find but you know it hangs over his head uh strange or unique physical attributes do we have any of those well i i think part of our work here is to like go back over the descriptions of the boy and there are some in in these plays just you know i don't know dainty youth or whatever as an example um so i think i think there are some some uh, things to pick up on there um one of the things i'm interested in is is sort of watching him so uh, um watching him have the dna of falstaff's physicality and the the sort of breeding of henry's physicality if that makes sense and seeing how that could play out yeah that's interesting i mean it, it and again gets it a thematic sort of idea in the play that really both henry and falstaff are his fathers in this mm-hmm. in this story you know 
again, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but Falstaff's son is, you know, as much about uh, the boy as it is about Henry as well, in that they're both, you know, sons to Falstaff. And in the same way, the boy is uh, also Falstaff's son, but becomes a surrogate son to, to Henry later. And uh, so the melding of those different you know, physical types and, and also the breeding of it all. Uh, it, it's an interesting question. Uh, favorite clothing style or outfit? I mean, um, this is yep. sort of what, what it's sort of contextual based on where we are in the play. Right. But yeah, um, it goes from sort of page, which is, which is up. I mean, it's up in status. A page is, is relatively, not high status, but it's it's not it's not a pauper, right? Um, all the way up to soldier attire, member of the court, um, yeah, court adjacent, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, he you know, uh, in our conception of this, yeah, he goes from being a page to uh, eventually being a courtier, like you know, Henry's main sort of uh, personal assistant, what have you. You know, um, so if we're talking about sort of class level by clothing, it's always going to be pretty nice. Except for, you know, maybe at the beginning when Falstaff's falling on hard times and maybe not upkeeping him as much as he, he ought to. Uh, there's going to be a certain amount of that. And then after Falstaff dies and the boy is sort of in the wind a little bit, uh, things might get hairy. But uh, certainly after... Um, Henry sort of, you know, adopts him essentially after the events of Henry V. Um, he's going to be in pretty high style <laughs> it, for, you know, a person of his stature, his standing. Um, where does he or she live and what is it like there? He lives in England mostly, right? <laughs> well, we talked about uh, in a in a prior <laughs> episode you know how he's he's sort of raised in a in a in a manner yeah. of some sort and then of course he's at the boar's head and then you know later on it, it you know he's in a camp he's at court he's you know lots of right i mean it, what the upshot is that he ends up having this really you know uh a lot of variety in terms of where he's lived growing up initially in uh you know place of some privilege and comfort uh as a member of uh of a noble household and then into the boar's head, which is, is sort of wild and, and, you know, debauched and <laughs> strange an environment. And then literally on the battlefields in France, and then suddenly with the King for the rest of his life. I mean, it's an amazing spectrum that he'll have occupied there. So uh, it's like all kinds of things. He's seen a lot of our boy. By the time we get to the end of this play, uh, defining gestures or movements, i.e., curling his or her lip when he or she speaks, always keeping his or her eyes on the ground. Do we we haven't built any of that? No, nope. I mean my, my, it's it's the same thing I said earlier. It's like we're trying to figure out some things that 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 might show the connection between Henry, the breeding side, and John Falstaff, the DNA side, and probably yeah. Dalterchi as well 
while yeah. I think about that. No, yeah. That's true. Things about his or her appearance, he or she would most like to change. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I need to think about that one some more. But what I, I would mean, say is yeah. it, it, that, that I, at least in my imagination, there there could be some opportunity for some self-consciousness um, in the on the youth side. Like he is too, whatever that is, the wayfish, you know, he's and he's trying to build himself up to be a soldier and and do all the right things. Pages do posture, physique, all of those things. So. Well, we went through the first 10 of these questions and uh, actually talked a lot. You know, we, we could keep coming back to this list. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Let's, uh, let's leave it here for right now. And uh, yeah, for the sake of um, we'll, we'll come back to this list. We'll, we'll keep going through it. Uh, and it's obviously helping us to think of some interesting things here and uh, peek behind the curtain, helping us to coalesce our ideas. So more on that later. We'll put it to bed for the moment. Um, and move on to our final topic of discussion. The Queen's today, Gambit. Which is it's the Queen's a, Gambit. Yeah. It's a new Netflix show. Miniseries, technically, Limited, I guess. yes, miniseries. Um, it's, it's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, tell us what you think about it. Well, I really like it a lot. Um, I, you know, by the time you are listening to this, if you're not uh, watching on the live stream, uh, I guess it's going to be old news, which is something that I don't love. I mean, that's a byproduct of the way that Netflix releases all the episodes of their shows at once, which I think has really kind of bit them in the butt since, you know, in the years since that was the new hot thing to do because uh, their shows don't develop the following that they, that they might like the Mandalorian, I think for instance, owes a lot of its popularity to the fact that it sort of grows from week to week and had that opportunity. Uh, Queen's Gambit, by the time you're listening to this on the podcast feed, may well be far in your rearview mirror. Uh, and some of you may have already watched it, but if you have not go back to it, uh, it's, it's very good. And the thing, um, so it's set, uh, in a, again, uh, a number of different years. In fact, it takes a not dissimilar approach to, uh, examining a person's life to what we've just been talking about with, uh, our plans for false half son, uh, where, uh, it's this uh, woman who, in the 1960s, is uh, we we get a brief sort of moment with her as an adult at the beginning of the first episode, where she's about to go play in a you know major international test ch chess championship, uh, and this is not spoiling anything because it's literally the first scene of the film of the of the show. Uh, she wakes up from what was clearly a drunken stupor. Um, in, uh, you know, a disheveled state in a, a Paris hotel room, uh, which has been totally ripped apart and looks, you know, debauched and messed up. And uh, she, like, takes a handful of uh, prescription pills and throws them in her mouth and drinks a couple of bottles of something and goes running out of the room so that she can make it to this major international chess championship, this uh, sort of very beautiful young woman. And uh, as she's about to start playing, we then flash back some 
undetu- uh, you know, not entirely uh, defined number of years to when she was a child at the age of nine going to an orphanage because her mother, uh, who was raising her as a single mother, um, killed herself in a car crash, which was in, also intended to kill the girl as well, but did not. And uh, she goes to an orphanage. And uh, again, this all comes out fairly quickly in the show. Learns to play chess there. With with a, a character played by one of my favorite character actors. Who is that? Bill Camp. I love everything what, he does. What are other things that people might have seen him in? Um, well, he's he's like in everything. But the, the one... Um, it's an HBO limited series a couple years ago where he played a detective and it was really good. Yeah. But he's great in this show too, by the way. Uh, um, but yeah, she learns to play chess and also at the same time, um, in fact, in a way that is presented as, uh, you know, parallel to each other and dependent on each other. She, uh, develops a real, um, narcotics habit because the people at the, uh, at the orphanage are drugging the kids in order to keep them uh, under control. And, you know, that that's an element of this that's a person, uh, you know, actually someone that Jeremy and I both know, I, I was talking about the show on on uh, um, Facebook and uh, mentioned, it's like, yeah, it's like drugs are her superpower. Uh, you know, derisively... Uh, but I, you know, the in fact, in and if you watch the first episode, like that's sort of the implication. But as the show goes on, I think it becomes a much less sort of, um, you know, cheap gimmick, and really, truly, more of a, an examination of the way that genius is often paired with addiction, and uh, and you know, certain vices that. Uh, are the other side of that kind of, um, you know, uh, of that kind of talent that, and, um, as the show progresses, it becomes a more, a very, I, part of it is that the way that it's shot is very fanciful and heightened Mm -hmm. and, uh, stylistic in a way that I think, um, would seem to, uh, again, give you that impression that, Drugs are her superpower, and it creates this sort of magical world that maybe seems reductive and um, and cheap, except that the show's analysis of those issues is really quite deft and sophisticated, especially as it continues on, and very straightforward in the way that it deals with it uh, in a way that's smart and interesting. So stick with that if you you know find it whatever. Yeah, I so um, there. Are, uh, on paper, there are a lot of reasons why I would not like this show. Um, and I will say what they are. Um, the material is potentially incredibly boring. Um, and the, the, not only the material, sort of character-wise, but uh, potentially, I say, should say, but also mm-hmm. the, the sort of the, the concept of the exploration of genius is something that's been told over and over again. And this mid-century setting has been done uh, a billion times. And so all of these things stack up in, in such a way that for me, it's like I could have seen this 
thing a hundred times by now. My my um, uh, my sort of ongoing criticism of things that do what this is trying to do is that they all devolve into dead poet society. It's like a mid twentieth century exploration of genius, downward arc, depressing, and it's 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 about the that personality. Sure, it's a little bit a beautiful mind. It's a little bit, yeah. you know, like as a as a as an example of this kind of thing. Or, um, you know, uh, what's that movie that you know Kate Winslet and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio too, which is all about the ennui of the 1950s, uh, um, of the of 1950s suburbia, and oh, oh hello, don't do that. Uh, or, um, you know, uh, just a bunch of other things that you've maybe seen before. But this is really very deftly and well told. It sidesteps a lot of that. Yeah. And, and um, I just find it captivating. Um, I, I um, It does deal subtly with those things. Uh, it does deal with imagination in a creative way. And I, I the other day when I was... Uh, I, I made some cheeky comment about beautiful mind sucking, which I think it does. Um, but uh, one of the things that, that sort of put beautiful mind on the map uh, in people's imagination, I think was, was to play with reality, but not admit that you're doing that. Yeah. And this has some, and this, this ties in, in with that. And I think does a, a really clever, effective job that feels filmic as opposed to uh, TV. Um, and I, you know, that, that scratches my itch. Right. And, and to that point, I mean, that's the thing that actually really drew me in the most. The filmmaking is really impressive and spectacular on this. It was written by Scott Frank, who is a screenwriter of some note. Uh, you know, you've seen work that he's done over the years uh, in you know, as a writer going back decades, um, you know, he wrote Dead Again, the Kenneth Branagh uh, film, Little Man Tate, um, Malice, that film, uh, Get Shorty, uh, Out of Sight, the Steven Soderbergh movie, Minority Report, so, you know, and uh, The Wolverine, <laughs> and Logan. Uh and this is his, um, you know, and he directed this in addition to uh, in addition to writing all of the episodes of it. He's a really very good director, which is not always the case with writers. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's really well told and really well observed. And in the second episode, for instance, there's this, uh, you know, she's going out and playing chess against... Um, essentially professional chess players for the first time or going into the world of competition for the first time. And, uh, like the, the way that they shoot it is all in the faces. You know, there's, you know, these competition that she's in with this, like a uh, sort of snotty, um, highly ranked player and it's all on their faces. Like, and it tells the story really well. I mean, the actors are really expressive, but, you know, it, it takes a really good filmmaker to do that. And in contrast to that um, to that uh, game, 
there's a game a little earlier between um, her and another character that really feels like a seduction. And, um, you know, and the, the mastery of tone in the, in this show is really spectacular. Like in the um, first episode, there's this sort of pervasive sense of dread and it's accomplished by doing so little, you know, that that's obvious. And, you know, you chalk that up to being just a really good filmmaker. And that is the thing that has really stuck with me. It's a, it's a really well-made series. So um, go check it out. Check it out. It's good stuff. We recommend it. Has our seal of approval for whatever that's worth, right? For sure. Um, well, and uh, with that, I guess our hour is upon us, is it not? It is. And so, oh. thank you for joining us. As always, you can tell us what you think, including that you hate our guts, by emailing sure. us at ours, that's H-O-U-R-S, at sweetteashakespeare.com. Happy Thanksgiving, if it applies to you. If not, happy whatever you're doing. We'll talk soon. Talk to you later. Ta-ta. One quick word about the after hours. You know, sometimes I get into these conversations with Rob, and I'm like what does this have to do with Shakespeare? And the answer is sometimes directly, not much. There's not much that we talk about that has to do with Shakespeare, but I still think there's value here because what we do when we deal with Shakespeare is look at an artist who is responding to his own culture, time period, politics, popular music, other plays. And so by Rob and I engaging those kinds of conversations, I hope you can begin to see what artists are doing in responding to our own contemporary culture and begin to see the connections there. Another thing I would love for you to understand about After Hours is that the opinions expressed in it are the opinions of the individuals involved. They don't represent Sweet D. Shakespeare. You may hear things about politics or about your favorite film that you just violently disagree with, and I want you to know that that disagreement is welcome. Sweet Tea Shakespeare gathers people around a common table. Those people don't have to agree. In fact, the conversations are richer and deeper when they do not. We're just artists sitting around a table, figuring out how to respond to the world. And we're glad you're here for it.